I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moore! Robbie Robbie Weekly. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in Cork and I'm joined as always for the show by Murray Kinsella of the 42.ie. How are things in your end, Murray? Good, Gav. I've just been watching a few Rob Carney drop goal videos. Um, he obviously put out his farewell to Leinster and, and Ireland fans in a pretty emotional letter. But uh, yeah, lots of highlights across his career. Uh, so it was nice to go down memory lane there. How, how are things with you? Very well, thanks. I've actually been doing something very similar. Uh, just, just catching up on a couple of those Rob Carney highlights. Uh, looking back on that 2009 Lions second test where he scores the first try it was just one of my favourite tries I think of of that decade and probably of the last 10-15 years um, what a servant what a player and uh, we unfortunately we probably won't have a great chance to chat about him on today's show because we've so much else to talk about with Leinster bowing out in Europe Ulster as well we're going to look as well to um, try and kind of make sense of or uh, explain the bigger picture the wider context uh, of Irish rugby uh, and how those two European defeats kind of uh, affected or what they tell us about it. And we're joined, as always, to do so by Bernard Jackman. How are you, Bernard? Good, thanks. Yeah, I'm not watching drop goals like you. I'm still looking at the the scrum the scrum uh, footage from, from last weekend, but uh, everyone, everyone to their own. Yeah, you do the heavy lifting on this show every week. <laughs> Come here, so we'll, we'll get straight into it there are loads of questions from the 42 members in the whatsapp group you've had a few on twitter as well murray and uh, we're going to get around to as many of them as we can physically fit into this hopefully we'll keep it to a better an hour maybe a little bit less and let you guys head off with your busy days but um i listen i was talking about this leinster match on uh, virgin media tv on the six o'clock show only a few days ago and uh, you know i've only got a couple of minutes to try and describe what happened and why it happened and to be totally honest Murray like I struggled like I was chasing my arse kind of going around in circles trying to uh, ascertain kind of why this happened to Leinster and how it happened and Greg O'Shea and Myrna O'Connor the presenters I'm like looking at them down down my laptop screen like please one of you like give me a dig out here you know take the wheel because like I was just spiraling like trying to uh, trying to uh, make sense of it all and I couldn't now thankfully we have more time to do so today you had a really good chat with Owen Toolin for the 42 members as well on Monday where you got into kind of a play-by-play of where went wrong for Leinster and so on and with yourself and Bernard here today we can kind of talk about it in a, a more macro sense but also like get into some of that nitty-gritty as well you've had a few days as well a few days extra to ruminate on it now and to reflect upon it so Give us your thoughts. It's a very general, vague question to begin with, but I, I don't know what else to ask you to start with. So give us your thoughts firstly, please. Yeah, well, Bernard mentioned the scrum there. No scrum, no win. Seven scrum penalties conceded in this game. Conceded nine points directly from there. Plus all the obvious psychological and momentum damage that those wins cost. Um, when it started with that first one, it, it, around the kind of quarter mark uh, for the first daily penalty where Cock just absolutely splinters the Lencer scrum. Um, that that started to have a massive effect on the game. Leinster had started really poorly before that, and I felt they just looked nervous from the off. The, the mental skill side of this game wasn't good from them. To to make an error on the very first kickoff of the game, and then to hand opportunities to 
Saracens with a couple of their own errors. Definitely Saracens deserve credit. Of course, they played superbly. That goes almost without saying. But Leinster did give them opportunities. Some of the decision-making was poor. You think of Sexton not releasing on Billy Vunapola for the 6-3 penalty. That's a really basic discipline decision-making error. you got to do better than that in a big game. Then the 9-3 penalty, Saracens put a nice grubber kick down the left-hand side. Yeah, Leinster are slightly stressed and Ringrose has to go back and claim it. It's come just after a Jordan Larmer error in the air. But then Luke McGrath throws a, a wild pass. Larmer gets the ball and then he makes a bad decision to pass on to Henshaw, who's completely isolated under pressure. And Duncan Taylor, who slipped that grubber through, tackles him and they go off their feet and it's 9-3. So Leinster kind of compounded errors with errors on top of those. And that was a big issue. The mall obviously didn't go well, and that was another big area. No scrum, no mall. You're really going to struggle. I think if they'd f- had those two set pieces firing, they probably could have won or would have won the game. Um, and even when they got into good positions in the 22, they were really wasteful, which isn't something you associate with Leinster. They only got point. They only came away from po- uh, 22 visits, so they had seven in total, and they scored points on two of those visits. So they actually got into decent areas, but unlike them, they didn't convert. Um, so there are a couple of issues there and I suppose the more I've watched it, the more I've gone, okay, obviously the first half and, and there are worrying signs in that and, and how they handled it mentally and we'll probably come to that in terms of Irish teams, etc. But the set piece was the biggest thing for me and I think obviously that's on the players as well. But the more I think about it, the more I think this is a real bad day for the coaching staff as well. Obviously mentally you're you're in charge of getting those things right. Um I thought the line-out was really... Is conservative the right word? They threw to the front or middle every single time and they kept trying to maul even though it wasn't working. You think about even in the, the final quarter where Rhodes... Like, he's probably in the... He is in the side of the maul. It's illegal play, but they turn over um, the maul just after Ringrose has chased Wigglesworth into touch. Um, and obviously the scrum as well. Rob McBride came in and this is the first big day, I suppose, his scrum has been involved in and it got absolutely obliterated. And, I mean... Bernard will be able to give more detail on the, the, I suppose, how exactly that happened and why, but it didn't look like a good collective scrummaging performance. You could see the flankers with their heads up, etc. Um, and maybe some of the selections didn't help in that as well. So, um, yeah, there's there's a couple of big themes there that, that really stood out in this game. Yeah, I mean, all in all, it was fairly disastrous when you consider how much you've said there and how much went wrong, how many things went wrong. Uh, Bernard, let's bring you in and start with the scrum. It probably was the defining image of the game, just that, that arm being raised, the whistle being blown, being blown so often on the back of scrums. Leinster just got absolutely dismantled in there. Uh, Murray says there there might have been a, a couple of selection issues. We can get to those in a moment. But from a technical standpoint and from what you saw, where did it go wrong for them? Look, I think the scrum at the weekend and the importance and the effect it can have on the game shows why we should be more tolerant of the delays to get the scrum set up and the collapses because it is an absolute weapon and and you know when you're part of a scrum going as well as Saracens you know you feel you feel 20% stronger and likewise when you're part of a scrum going as badly as Leinster it has effect on all your play around the field and you know it drains you physically it affects you mentally it's it's an incredible dark place to be being in a scrum going backwards like that so I think that had an effect on the rest of the game it had an effect on the mall it had an effect on the carries for Leinster and, and it definitely kept Saracens in the game. I thought the real benefit for them, apart from the nine points, was every time they got a scrum, pen, uh, uh, a scrum 
they were, or not every time, but when they got a scrum, they had a very strong chance of getting a scrum penalty. And that allowed them to dictate the pace of the game so they could get a breather, you know, kick up the line, walk up to the line out, and then go again. Whereas I think probably the area Leinster, one of the areas Leinster would have fancied their, their chances of being better than Saracens was match fitness and, uh, you know, that last 20 minutes were going to be key. And maybe maybe they, they overemphasized that and, you know, thought, you know, as long, like we'll, we'll win the game in the last 20 and neglected the need to be, you know, very accurate from the start because the, the first half performance, uh, I don't know when they've put in a, a, a as bad a performance uh, before in, in 40 minutes. And that's, I think, not just the season they're unbeaten, but going back maybe two or three years, they, they had so many different parts of their game that didn't function. And, you know, the example where... Um, I think it was Robbie Henshaw got smashed under the post, uh, under the post by um, uh, for the for the penalty uh, by Duncan Taylor. I mean that's what Leinster have been doing to to opponents over the last four or five weeks, and you know all this work they've done in COVID around um, shaping your enemy and, and putting teams in place they didn't want to be and hoping that they overplayed. I mean you know when you've when you've gathered a kick like that, you're not on the front foot. You know. The, what, what would Saracens do in that situation? They would box kick back or they would go contestable back. And Leinster seemed to just be completely taken out of, of rhythm and, and overplayed at the wrong time. Um, and at the right time, when they tried to play, you know, James Lowe gets knocked into touch. Um, and that's a, it's, it's just one moment, but it typifies where they were at mentally. And every little error like that was given, given Saracens energy and deflating Leinster you know James Lowe uh, can do that in a Pro 14 game and this is going to be that's the question mark now around him stepping up to international level is is that just is power enough to be a top class international winger so um, but there was lots of little things that Leinster did that were untypical but having said that you have to give Saracens massive massive credit to do what they did um, to come and impose themselves to find a weakness or a series of weaknesses in Leinster's game and repeated for 80 minutes um, at the level they did was was phenomenal. But look at it, in terms of the pure scrum, I think Leinster have have changed how they scrum. Um, they they're trying to be more aggressive at scrum time, um, trying to win more penalties themselves. Without I think the cohesion and the plan to do it, and maybe selection, maybe that I don't think that pack was the right pack to to go and be in, uh, overly aggressive against the Saracens eight where. Realistically, you're outpowered. I mean, you know, for me, Callagher is the, is the international hooker in the squad. He's the best scrummager. Um, he's your most powerful hooker. Um, I thought he had to start. And I know, you know, there's, there's rumour that he had a calf problem or whatever. But um, I think I think he has to start. And he gives you a presence there. Um, especially with Tyke Furlong out. Potentially with Tyke Furlong there, you can carry, um, an, you know, a, a, another player who's more suited to around the field. Plus, you know, Fardy was an error not to have Fardy in around the match twenty three. Um okay he's not a he's not a Mario Toje or, or Billy Bunapola, but you know, he's very physical, he's very smart, um he, you know, he, he doesn't go backwards very often. He's very abrasive for uh for his for his size as such. He, he probably plays bigger than he is. Um or you go with a Ryan Baird and, and you and you get two your two biggest locks in there, and um, you know you get as much weight in that front five as you can. 
And then the other part of it was the back rows were, were paranoid about Billy and they were they were dropping off behind early so they were leaving their front five exposed. So I thought you had a Leinster scrum who lots of lots of experience in it, lots of good individuals, but don't seem didn't seem to have the collective plan or application of that plan that Saracens did. And I thought Leinster's became very individual very quickly and they got exposed. Mm, Murray, let's uh in a, in a kind of an attempt to move on from the scrum because there's so much else to talk about let's just address those selection issues then uh, like it's no shame on Sean Cronin to say that if you're going to be in a 50-50 scrum on paper or a competitive scrum at least that he might not be your guy for that particular game certainly Roland Keller would have been the player that most I think would have expected to be selected um in that sort of styles make fights kind of a, a battle in the scrum, Devon Toner to an extent you could you could point to as as being maybe not necessarily the the man for that particular game or at least the man to start that particular game. And what what surprised me most, and and you could absolutely disagree with me here, and same with you, Bernard. But like, was the fact that they gave away I think it was five scrum penalties, four or five within twenty six twenty seven minutes, the game was starting to get away from them, like. And Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster didn't address it in any way. Now, I know a huge part of what they've done is like uh, kind of cultivated a sense of mutual trust in their players and you back your players to see through the crisis, comfortable in chaos, all these kind of buzz terms that we hear. But also your job as a coaching staffer and as a head coach is to make a difficult decision and actually to, at the risk of hurting somebody's feelings, hook them to help the team you know and it, it didn't feel as though particularly with a scrum it's just unlikely that it's going to come right when it's being destroyed so systematically were you surprised at all that he let the scrum kind of continue well Colin and Lancaster let it continue to half time and even just after half time like or am I being too harsh here in suggesting that it, there should have been personnel changes within kind of half an hour because of at the same time, it is going to be embarrassing for the player coming off. Yeah, I guess in hindsight, it, it would have made sense to do that. And um, they'll probably reflect on that and say, could we have made a change earlier? The fact that they replaced Toner and Cronin after 42 minutes, I, I still don't understand why coaches do that. Just do it at halftime. Um, it, it's a recognition that they probably felt they got those selections wrong. And, and, it, and it, it does look that way. I mean, the hooker one just didn't make sense even before the game. I'm not just saying this with hindsight. Like the the big selection dilemma that kind of before that was like Jordan Larmer having a bad game at fullback against Munster in that first game after restart, and they stuck with him. They stuck with their young guy who they've been, I suppose, bringing through in this position has become their first choice fullback, and they said go go after it again. They just didn't really do that with Keller. Maybe it was an injury issue, but they didn't say it. there was, and and that's on them if they're if they're if they're not kind of only up to that. He came on after forty two minutes and looked pretty good to me. So I just thought it was at odds with what they have done even with Hugo Keenan getting back to ahead of potentially Rob Carney coming into the back three and reshuffled they they went for the younger guy whose form had been really good I know the line didn't go great against like for Kelleher and, and the entire collective but as we discussed that wasn't just on his throw it was an, a, a number of issues um, and it just seemed like a, an odd selection the thing with Toner as well is is obviously his line out specialist and that's the reason you pick him for that cam that nous in that area and again like it, the line out hasn't been good since the restart it's pretty much been the main weakness there apart from this scrum obviously in this game 
but consistently over the course of the restart the Lions been bad and again like the coaches have to take Leo Cullen that's his area McBride helping out as well they got to take responsibility for that it wasn't good it got in their heads obviously and they felt they couldn't go into the game without Toner Ryan Berry comes off the bench is really explosive and as Bernard mentioned Scott Farley brings just that kind of war war dog mentality and, and he would have loved to you know bring the edge against Saracen so they probably did get them wrong and um, we've praised their good selections many times deservedly we've praised their brilliant coaching many times deservedly but they'll be have to like have a really hard look at themselves even with the mental side of it like why are why are Leinster so nervous on the kickoff before a, a big home game an opportunity to settle a score with Saracens like this you know Alex Anderson you know he suggested there was going to be a seeded out in Leinster's minds in this game and it definitely looked that way I go back to the decision making thing and I'm not trying to overblow this because I don't think it's the disaster maybe it's being portrayed as in, in some quarters but the decision making again last season in the final think back to Gary Ringrose not passing to a three-man overlap or think of James Ryan there was a t- turnover opportunity in that final that stands out to my mind where they got the ball there was space on the edge and Ryan just trucks it up and then you think I'm doing very similar where he kind of ran into Toje in this game last weekend and, and won the collision but he could have just tipped on a pass and there was space in front of Jack Conan um, Leinster kind of went into their shells slightly I think in, in, in terms of those decisions even Jordan Larmer right at the end when they're trying desperately to find a way back in he, he has two men over uh, over outside him and he tucks the ball into his right hand and, and then offloads forwards those things stand out in my mind um, but a big question for Leinster is why they like why are you getting spooked after one early error when you're one of the best teams and I still think they are one of the best teams in in the the global Mar- Mar- the cha- sorry Murray yeah, I agree with you the challenge is is that you don't get to Leinster coaches and uh, the Leinster players they don't get to learn or really get tested most weeks of the year and and, and you know, I said it last week oh, that's the challenge for the other provinces that Leinster are kind of learning more on a Tuesday session or whatever, but the reality is you can't. They can't um, rectify, or replicate the quality that that Saracens or Racing or, or Claremont bring, and the very nature of it is their the decision making doesn't get exposed uh, often enough. So they've never been in a situation over the last year or probably two years or three years where at halftime, probably Northampton in the in, in Cardiff was the last time their scrum was an Achilles heel, and you need to be able to problem solve uh, and find a solution at halftime or your coach's messages to help you have a chance to win the game. And and that day, obviously, Feek, you know, Feek was went to pack into the showers and showed him a few overhead clips. And Rossi, uh, Rossi understood what they needed to change, and they changed it, and it had a big effect on the game. But that's the chat. The the reality is that, and it's not look at it doesn't absolve blame, but it's just a situation Leinster in is that. They haven't been put in a, in a situation enough uh, where physically they're dominated, and not just the scrum. You know, their mall got beaten up. Um, I thought the breakdown. Uh, you know, they were they were taken out of their uh, out of their uh, their flow and rhythm, and this is something that they've obviously waited a year to to have another shot off Saracens, um, and unfortunately, over the course of eighty minutes, they underperformed. They're still a phenomenal team and, and brilliant coaches and and all that etc but it's such a that's the that's the difference between winning european cups uh, and and not is being able to get yourself up for a knockout game get everything right get your selection get your game plan right and get through to the next round and 
there's been a lot of talk around how busy this season is and you know they had to do two Pro 14 games a semi-final a final of the Pro 14 a Champions Cup quarter-final a Champions Cup semi-final next week round one of the Pro 14 and a final even if you play the same team every week it's still only eight weeks and we know Leinster didn't have to do that they rotated against Ulster round two they freshened up the squad for semi-final and final and realistically you know, you have to beat Saracens to get to make the semi-final valid and the final valid in, in three weeks. So, um, it's maybe just the whole thing around what depth we have, um, you know, and and we have to keep everyone fresh and fit, and it's an unbelievably busy schedule, and they haven't played for seven or eight months, you know, or six seven months. So, I think maybe that was an issue as well. Is is trying to trying to keep everyone happy, keep the squad cohesion happy, which obviously at the start of the season is, is more important than maybe the end of the season when, you know, people know the pecking order. But um, definitely they'll have massive regrets. I, again, I, I still think they're a phenomenal side. Um, but the scary thing is, is that some of the areas that Saracens were very strong in, it's probably not down to just coaching or stuff you can fix on the... Tr- okay, the scrum, you can... Lesser scrum can, can, can get better. But... It's the physicality and being able to deal with pressure, which is something that now is in their head. Like Leinster put in the head of Ulster and, and Munster over the last few weeks. Um, whereas Saracens, I think their senior players, they back themselves um, that on a big occasion, they, they step up. And even though some of them were involved in the World Cup final that they lost, um, you know their, their performance in the semi-final was a big occasion and... You know, uh, and then what happened to, to England, same thing happened to Leinster, that South Africa got a scrum dominance. But they've won eight trophies now, that group. And I think they're, they're a phenomenal side. And what they've, to be able to come to Leinster and win, given what's happened to them over the last six months, seven months, um, like most clubs would rip them apart. And they were still able to, to find um, a, a cause to, to come back without some of their buddies and without some of their key players and still win. It's phenomenal. Bernard, can I ask you there just quickly on that? Like, if, excuse me, like if Leinster are struggling to kind of uh, recreate the intensity that they'd come across against the Saracens either during the week or on game days in the Pro 14 and so on, like, how do Saracens replicate it or how do they summon it for a one-off occasion when you consider, like, they would have, not played anything of Leinster's calibre either in the last two weeks and months and in fact it's probably accentuated for them in the sense that most of their games well all of their games were were dead rubbers apart from the pool stages of this competition so like where do Saracens muster that uh, incredible intensity from and why can't Leinster do that on a one-off if you know what I mean No I think they can do it they just need to find the right um, the right message look at it yeah and it comes back down to senior players. Like Mark Mc- I know I played with Alex Anderson in in, uh, in Sale. Um, you know I chatted him quite a bit. Very good technical coach. You know good leader. McCall. You know very smart. Um, but uh, but the players have to get credit. Like Brad Barrett. You know Jamie George, Manitoulagi, Atoje. I mean you know they they obviously were able to get themselves ready emotionally and physically for this. And and I know you could say well they only one game to worry about. Um, for the last six months, and this was they didn't care about the Premiership, etc. But the reality is, they've done it time and time again for Saracens, um, even when they were dominating their own domestic league. So that's the challenge. It's a challenge for the likes of, I suppose, the senior players in the Leinster squad. So James Ryan, um, you know, Conan, 
you know, Johnny, uh, Gary Ringrose, Henshaw, like, they need to make sure that for these big games, and it's, look, it's a, it's a you know, they were beaten in the final last year by a very good Saracens team, you know, they went back to back in, in the Pro 14, so they're very good at getting consistent performances, um, but what maybe, what Saracens have done, which is more outstanding, is to being able to, to, to bring themselves to another level when the occasion demands it, and, that's that's the next step for Leinster, and if they get that right, um, if they get if they improve on that, you know they will be they will be very very hard to beat. But there's still a question. Unfortunately, there's a question mark around that now, just because of what we saw Saturday. Yeah, that, there's a question here from Ryan O'Hagan. You touched upon it a moment ago, Murray. This is on Twitter, and Ryan was saying, has there been an overreaction to Leinster's defeat? They lost to a team of five starting Lions, two more Lions, a World Cup winner, and only three non-capped players, whereas Leinster have three Lions, two of them starting Lions, two Champions Cup debuts, uh, plus Leinster could have won if they'd taken more of their chances, and and that last point is fair enough, but I I think in relation to the teams, which Ryan has uh, taken the time to, to line out here, uh, with a with pen and paper, like we're talking about Lions Tour three more than three years ago. Also, you know, like if you were to pick a Lions squad out of these two teams last week, I think it'd be a little bit more even in terms of starting Lions. And I, I don't know, like whether there hasn't been an overreaction to this or not, Murray probably depends on your tolerance as a fan for criticism of your team. I think because we see this often with Monster as well. There's nearly a divide between people when when their defeats are kind of dismantled and, and dissected, where it's like, well, we get to semifinals all the time, like it's they're not that bad. Whereas other people are like, this was absolutely dreadful. Why can't we be better and so on? So, I don't know. Do, do you feel as though like the criticism has been fair? I, I don't know what else were meant to do when they were so bad, particularly in the first half. Are you meant to just kind of pat them on the back and say next year, lads? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the criticism of the of the game itself has been very fair. I, I suppose I maybe a bit more cautious in terms of looking forward, and I know everyone's going to be thinking, "Oh, you know, Ireland are um, doomed as well." I think Ireland are still probably in the same place as they were at the start of this year, coming off a horrific twenty nineteen and trying to rebuild. And I think that's still the same position. I, you know, I'd be surprised if they go to Twickenham in this Autumn Nations Cup and win. I, I don't think anyone's expecting that. Um, they still have a way to go to get back to that level and to develop their game and to develop their squad and create more competition for places. I mean, even physically, yeah, the, the scrum and the mall had really bad days. That was clear and obvious. And, and certainly Sarri's won lots of collisions and, and that's what they do when they're at their very best. But I mean, I look at people like Caelan Doris, James Ryan, Baird even coming through now, Keller to me, Furlong when he's fit, Porter as well. There's other guys in that squad, CJ Sander and the likes. And even in the backs of Aki, Henshaw, Sexton obviously is physically strong. Like th- Those guys are more than capable of physically stepping up and coping at the highest level of the game. We've seen that. In 2018, Ireland, the narrative was that they were bullying everyone physically. You remember they went to Twickenham and obviously England were missing a few guys that day, but they, they did really bully and, and impose themselves. Um, now, obviously, it hasn't been at that level since, and 2019 was a worry in that sense. And there probably is still for Ireland that psychological hangover from it um, and particularly maybe in the biggest games you're going to see that coming out those doubts and that nervousness um, and not getting back to that level where they were in 2018 in that sense but I see lots of good players there and emerging players and and reasons that Ireland can continue on this pathway of development I suppose I think for Farrell is to create genuine competition there as well amongst the senior players in 2019 that was something that 
again in hindsight didn't work well it was probably too much comfort for senior players in the starting team and in their positions even with someone like Doris coming into the start the first Six Nations game you saw a reaction from Stander who was moved to six and Omani was dropped and he came off the bench early on obviously and had a really good game and and looked decent in that Six Nations as well so that kind of shows what what can happen Um, and it's a case of probably backing some of those younger guys or fringe guys to create that competition so yeah I mean for Leinster and Ireland you look forward after directly after the weekend you think oh you know yeah, it's all doom and gloom but I still think they're probably in the same position they were which is not going to be world beaters uh, straight away but certainly not too far off um, there's a couple of key issues which we've kind of gone through and highlighted there that definitely need to be improved and, and resolved and, and even the Ireland set piece has been a bit a bit more um, susceptible to weaker performances over the last year having been a real effective strength for them um, before that so I wouldn't be all doom and gloom to be honest and, and I think Leinster yeah again they learn absolutely massive lessons but that's not a take away from what they did over the last year as well they they had a really impressive year and, and they have some really excellent players obviously their coaching staff have, have give, been given loads of credit as we said but learning experience for absolutely everyone last weekend yeah Mario I disagree with you there like um, I, I, I think Leinster Leinster are very strong and there's, there's no real issue there but and it's going back to the the comparison of the two team sheets and you know they've there's a British line there, Leinster only have an international, etc. The reality is, and, and hopefully this continues, to win a European Cup, that's the calibre you need. Right? That's and bar maybe Breve winning one, you know, at the start, generally it's been teams full of quality players um, that win European Cups. And uh, for the French teams, obviously they're not British and Irish lines, but they're top end. French internationals or all blacks who have come to France. Um, and likewise, when Munster and, and, Ar- and Leinster and Ulster have won it, they've had dominant world-class players or top-class players. So that's a given. So I think like we, we can't... In, and that's why we have such a love for it, because that's how high the level is. Um, mm. So that's a given. And I think from an Irish point of view, like 2018, we have to forget about that. And can't, can't, like, can't keep giving people credit um in the bank for, for selection now for 2018's form like it's such a long time away and it was brilliant and, and phenomenal uh what ireland did then um and obviously leinster won the european cup that year etc but on form now like we're, ireland are going to camp in what four weeks um like who's the, who's our internet who's our starting nine um who's our starting hooker um if tight furlongs out who's our starting tight head um who partners James Ryan in the second row? Well, both him and Henderson have come back from injury, so neither of them have hit top form yet. Who's our seven? Who's our eight? Like, who's our fullback? What happens, to Jacob Stockdale? So, well, like, there's re- there's there's lots of talent and experience there on form at the moment, um, and the question mark would be if Ireland play England, and maybe we say, okay, we're not good enough to go to Twickenham, whatever, and then we play France in Paris. You know, France are a powerful team. They're better coached than they were before. Like, where where are we pitching our, our, our expectations? Are we saying, okay, we're, you know, we're mid-table six, six nations, which I think we probably are. Um, and we probably will, like, without being brilliant, we can always be around that because um, that's, you know, we probably have enough talent anyway to do that. But I don't, I don't think... And it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not, it's not, it's, it's kind of protecting the coaches maybe for some, in, in some ways because I think... Andy Farrell is, is still, he hasn't had a huge amount of time as head coach with the team. 
Um, my cats still trying to obviously implement an attacking style, uh, etc. But the, the the reality is, I don't think we can just keep going. Oh, these lads are they were unbelievable today, and they're able to bash England. Um, it'll all be okay. Uh, I like. I think what we need to have is start to develop a game plan like we had in 2018 that was we were very good at and suited to us. I'm not saying it has to be the same game plan, but just something that is kind of how we play. And obviously then we need players to start to get back up to that level and perform in big games like we saw. Like I told you at the weekend, I mean, like it was probably, and he's done it lots of times, but like it was such a dominant performance, you know, you could, um, along with lots of his buddies, but he was so good individually that you just go, wow, he's a clear out. He's a, he's a clearly a British and Irish line on that performance. Um, he's clearly a world class player. And until we get five or six players playing to that level again on a, on a consistent base for Ireland, I don't think we can have much confidence. Mm. Oh, but but uh, I don't think you're really disagreeing with me there. That that they're the points I'm making essentially. I, like before this Leinster match at the start of this year, my expectation for Ireland wasn't particularly high. I didn't think they were going to go and win and win the Six Nations. I thought they'd be competitive. We probably did think they'd lose away in Twickenham and, and they did. And after this match, I, I don't think it's vastly changed my opinion of where Ireland are. Like, you're totally right. England have always had more powerful athletes. So France, obviously, they have a bigger player base, way more world-class athletes to choose from. But the best Ireland teams have gone about being better prepared than them or having a smarter game plan and... And I agree. That's the that's the way forward, and and that's going to take a while to develop. I think, um, and whether it happens to be the case with Andy Farrell and my cat, who, who knows? I suppose, um, like yeah, I, I I'm not saying that Ireland are going to go in to this All Nations Cup and win it. I don't think that's the case at all, and and I wouldn't have before this restarted season at all, or even at the start of the year. Um, I think there's a long way to go, but I suppose I do think there are, are a couple of young players there who can become real forces. I mean, we did a Lions thing back in, I don't know when it was, started lockdown. And we were talking about Keller and Doris as potentially going on that tour and if they got a good run. And, and I still think that talent is there. There's definitely, certainly concerns and, and worrying issues. But I suppose for me, the, the Leinster game hasn't massively changed how I perceived Ireland to be to shaping up. Yeah, no, I, I understand what I'm saying. Like, we, we can't say it's not doom and gloom. Um, like, the reality is, if we're just expecting us to be mediocre or mediocre at, in, in autumn, we should just say that um, Like and, and explain why. Like, I don't think... I think there's a massive need now for players to, to step up. Like, I think Ulster and Munster have been poor since lockdown, realistically. Um, and players, international players in both those teams haven't haven't fired um, and you know Leinster have been decent okay like even I think they, they recognised that they weren't in top form despite winning the, the Pro 14 final and then Saturday was a was a was a letdown so there has to be some spike in, in individual performances or else we're expecting too much of the coaches to give them a game plan that's going to help them overachieve like the reality is the perfect scenario is you have players playing really well um, stepping up to the to the mark on occasion and you combine that with a really good game plan and then you you know you, you overachieve or whatever and, and, and you and you and you do really well. But at the moment I think you're looking at too many players going in or too many positions up for grabs. And unless Andy Farrell is really lucky or um is really brave and he and he identifies those players who haven't you know proven internationally at level yet and they come in and add a spike to it, um we're not gonna really improve that much. 
Mm. And there is that sense of unknown. I, I totally agree that there's there's got to be more competition and that reputations can't be a big factor in, in, in decision-making around selection. Like even someone like Conor Murray at, at Scrum Half, who's just not hitting the heights he has before, that has to be taken into account. And I suppose the, yeah, the concern is you have unknowns there with guys coming in. Like if Ryan Baird, if you're going to back him, a guy who looks athletically certainly very capable of it and by all accounts is very smart as well. You don't quite know exactly how he's going to settle in and there's a lot of pressure on his shoulders. But um, someone like Dara, someone like Keller, they've kind of shown the signs that they're they're able maybe at that level. And I think back them and put Doris in as your number eight and put Keller in as your hooker and go for it with a bit of experience around them. Um, because otherwise you're just going to get essentially the same results as you were getting before. We briefly interrupt this rugby broadcast with a message from me, Gavin Cooney. If you're enjoying this show, you should check out the suite of podcasts that come with a 42's membership package. These include Murray's Rugby Weekly Extra and also Behind the Lines, where we chat to sports writers about their careers along with their favourite pieces of writing. We have an archive of more than 40 guests at this point, including Reich Thompson. I mean, I just made an Excel spreadsheet and tried to account for every single day of his life in the 10 years between uh, Earl dying and that Thanksgiving with the golf club and the fire hydrant. Maliki Clerkin. A good idea writes itself. No, it doesn't. No, that's wrong. It doesn't write itself, but it gets you into the position where you can do the thing you're good at. And Graham Hunter, who told us of how he once faced off against a young Brian O'Driscoll. A young O'Driscoll played for uh, for Blackrock. I know this because he, yeah. he, hand, he put a hand off to me right in my face. I had no idea. You could... Fuck's sake, man. This is, how can this be in the rules? Well, I did when I woke up. So come join us at members.the42.ie. And now back to Murray and, as he sadly referred to around the office, the OG Gavin. Question for the pod. This one is from Shane. It's a long one. I'm going to read it out. We've dealt with this before, but the reality is that it keeps coming up. All the great teams skirt the edges in terms of pushing the laws. Cox scrummaging at an angle all day. I told you it was a menace at the breakdown. Lots of razor-tight offside calls for Saris. Top teams seem to have players that push the boundaries and get away with it. Schalke Berger, Richie McCaw, Itoji, etc. Maybe it's a legacy of Schmidt not wanting to give away a single penalty and many players being in the Ireland set-up. Uh, or maybe it's down to many players coming through private schools in Leinster. The private schools are going to get bashing today, Murray, by the way, in your Twitter mentions as well, I think. I don't think we're hungry enough, us, us lads who went to fee-paying schools. Uh, Bod, Bod suggested we Irish players lacked a, a bit of dog before, which I think sort of touches on the same point. Do you think we need to move from being top athletes like Ryan, Kelleher, Conan, etc., to being top athletes that have that bit more menace about them? It seems to me that we give away stupid penalties like not rolling away like not rolling away rather than trying to get away with lots of little things that probably won't get picked up by the officials but make life difficult for the opposition. I know nobody wants to advocate for a negative game plan, but it just feels like we can look like we're having our lunch money taken when we're playing bigger and stronger teams. Very well crafted question there from Shane. Murray, do you want to take that one to begin with? Yeah, I think playing close to the edge is, is essential if you're if you're going to be a winner, uh, you got to test the limits. And Saracens did that brilliantly last weekend, didn't they? They, they particularly around the mall, they absolutely challenged it. And even when they got a warning for the early counter drive, um, you probably saw a bit more of it. Obviously, it can slip over and you, you don't want to be ill-disciplined and giving away those uh, silly, needless, cynical penalties. But I think it's part and parcel of any player. And, and the best 
do bring that. You look at someone like Dan Lee, who's obviously been missed greatly while he's been on the comeback trail, but he has that edge about him, that kind of nastiness, that dominant personality. Bernard mentioned it with Maro Atoje, where he's he's really determined to dominate opposition and cause absolute frustration for them at every available opportunity. Any exit for an opposition team against Atoje is is just uh, so frustrating because he's there dragging bodies into a counter-rucking, back on his feet, screaming and roaring at times. And maybe not exactly that formula, but some s- mindset like that is is definitely a crucial part of a, a top player. Um, and confidence probably f- plays into that, doesn't it? When you're when you're floating with confidence, it's it's easier to impose yourself in that way. But I think it's a really good point and a, and a really good question. You want to see that edge from players and you want to see them testing the limits. Um, again, our sides have done that well in the past. You think of Munster years gone by, um, they lived life on the edge at times. They were very rough, is that the right word, at times, and, and really aggressive team. Obviously, Joe Schmidt's teams were brilliant at things like uh you know not blocking but slight subtle obstruction ahead of the ball and, and all that kind of side of it as well you have to be savvy around the pitch breakdown obviously is another part of that as well and and it's a really good point yeah thank you to shane for that one and another another the 42 member with a really good question you like this one bernard when i sent it to you earlier on whatsapp uh aina hagerty who says for the pod does irish rugby misunderstand the skill set of the modern fullback Fullbacks at top-level club rugby and internationally require the skills of a running-out half and a strong aerial game, but we still largely view fullbacks as wingers with hands, which is not the case anymore. Nearly all top-level fullbacks have played at out-half. Good, Hogg, Barrett, McKenzie, LaRue, etc. We're largely still trying to upskill traditional-style fullbacks or wingers, which will take years to do and might never happen. Why not play, leave the likes of Larmer and Stockdale on the wing, like we did with Conway, and invest in the likes of Frawley, Flannery and Lowry. Let playmakers play, let runners run. Let the boys play, says Aina. Bernard, do you want to take that one? Well, no, I listen, I, 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 I agree that the fullback's role um, is, is massively important in the modern game, and um, the more comfortable they are as a as a playmaker, um, the better. And it's very difficult to, to upskill somebody in that. It's not a natural part of their game. So I would agree that I think it's very easier to go from a fly half to be a fu- to a fullback than a winger to be a fullback, to be honest. Um, having said that, not many are getting that, that opportunity. Um, and probably, you know, there's a, there's probably a worrying, there's a worrying gap in our depth chart to, at, at fullback at, at the moment. And, uh, Obviously, we lost a good fullback today, Carney. But um, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I, I think you know Joey was able to do it for for Leinster, uh, and they definitely felt that his best position long term was going to be as a as a fullback. But part of the reason was he could be that extra ball player. And um, and at the moment, with, with him out, I know some of the the the, or the the questions there, or the names mentioned, are are young tens and, and potentially. Potentially, it's not a bad idea to to try and you know maybe make them uh, dual position and, and give them give them game time there. But uh, I do agree that it's a key role, and and the really good ones are are very comfortable uh, uh, in terms of game management and being a first receiver. It does feel as though it's something we're lacking across the board. Actually, Murray, even looking at Leinster at the weekend, 
So a lot of the questions actually that we've gotten today for the show, uh, well, a fair few of them have been in relation to Sexton and it's that old thing that kind of tends to crop up when a team that includes Sexton loses where people say, is it time to phase him out? Is it time to move on? And so on. Like he was unbelievable just last week. So um, it's kind of difficult for me to to compute those questions at the moment. But um, one thing that I think is, is undeniable is that when these kind of games go wrong for him, uh, the lack of a second playmaker is, is jarring like because everything is going through him so if he starts to make a couple of mistakes it's it, the spotlight is very much on him you know whereas if you had in an Ireland setup even the way Simon Zebo could uh, come in and, and spray a ball and just take a little bit of the the heat off the out half uh, it, it, like it's it's what teams are doing now anyway and it just seems to be a more functional way of breaking down a defence like Sarri's when you just have that that second option who can do something a little bit different and it also involves your out half uh, potentially kind of in midfield or further, further out the field. Yeah, we, t- we talk about it so often don't we on this podcast on our Monday podcast for members about the second playmaker thing and obviously with the trend of defences improving massively over the last decade this has been a response to you've seen the All Blacks and England obviously have two playmakers and a whole lot of other sides even the box have, have Willie Leroux at, at fullback as mentioned, uh, and it, it is effective, and you get a second set of eyes, a, a natural decision maker. And the interesting thing is that Leinster were pursuing that model. You think of Sexton plus Carberry, that's the way they were going. They saw Carberry as their long term successor to Rob Carney, I suppose. And, and it wasn't until um, until Carberry departed, much to their frustration, um, that I suppose Larmer became that became that figure, the, the successor to Rob Carney. And they've had to encourage him. I mean, they've talked about it, he's talked about it, them encouraging him to try and get on the ball more, to be a bit of a playmaker. But I don't think it comes as naturally, certainly not as naturally or intuitively, maybe is the better word, as it does to someone like Joey Carberry, who obviously plays 10 as well. Um, and that's a, it's a hard journey to go on, to become good at that decision-making, that vision, that creative edge, that play calling responsibility it really is a tough position to be in um, and some players probably do struggle with it um, I suppose the other thing as well in, in terms of sex and his I think you know he's, he's obviously start, restarted well and he looks in, in excellent physical shape but for Ireland one of the more worrying parts is probably you know what do they do uh, post that and, and is that process going to happen now over the, the autumn series Um it's all well and good having two playmakers, but you want to have a backup to your main playmaker as well. Carberry has been seen as the successor to him, but he's clearly still got a, a way to go with his recovery from that really frustrating ankle issue. Um, and I'll be fascinated to see how Andy Farrell views that pecking order in behind him because there's no obvious... I mean, Ross Byrne is, is you know the latest um, backup from the evidence in the Six Nations um, and certainly had a good game in the final against Ulster in the Pro 14 final. But whether he's a long-term successor to take over and drive on the Ireland team, um, not so sure. I'd be interested actually in Bernard's thoughts on that depth chart because he mentioned some of the depth charts uh, and the ten one maybe. Yeah, is a worry. ten one maybe is a worry, Bernard. Yeah, ten one ten's worry, nine's a worry. Um, ten, I think we know who our starter is for sure, and uh, I don't think there's any question around that. But what's coming behind? I'd imagine it's. I think it's from probably Ross. Um, to be honest, uh, at at the moment, um, just going back to the whole second playmaker it was a really interesting podcast over lockdown uh with george ford with the magic academy and and they asked him around you know what does john mitchell do the week of a test match and um in terms of analyzing opposition and showing clips and he he basically said that they keep it really simple and the core 
thing that they want to know is how much they play off nine, how much they play off ten, and you know whether they play much off twelve or or fifteen. And he gave us an example, and he said this. You know, he said, "Oh, you know, when when we play Ireland, you know, John Mitchell just comes in and says, you know, it's it's hundred percent off Sexton. So effectively, everyone then is just geared towards get you know get at Johnny, get in his space, um, and by by nature of that everything around him. So it's very easy for for teams to shut down that threat, or easier than than it is if you have a more balanced attack. So um, I just thought it was a really like it was." was one of those ones where you kind of give you a little bit more than you kind of expect um but i think when i look at how ireland play um and how, how leinster play even though leinster play off nine a bit it's not it's more to open up the field rather than to to line break or um to, to you know it's not really dynamic carries off nine it's they're still a predominantly a, a team off 10 i think so um i think that's massive for it to have a balanced attack and a balanced kicking game as well um which obviously uh, you know, Leinster have improved on, on hugely. Probably Ireland will, will look to implement that. In terms of depth chart, yeah, I, I think it's Ross, to be honest. Uh, Ross Byrne, who I think has big game temperament, um, controls controls the the field well and, and puts other people in position uh, well. So I think he's probably the, the standout at the moment. Jack, the, Jack Carty, you know, obviously Connacht only had two games and then went into a little pre, mini preseason. Uh, but he did refine his form um towards the end of end of before lockdown after after christmas and uh you know has a very nice attacking balance game so maybe he's someone who come in obviously madigan billy burns up north up north and you know uh unfortunately until carby comes back i don't think any of the monster tens despite the youngsters having a lot of potential are are going to get into international frame. Mm. I think Farrell would love to what you, sorry what just briefly dad I think Farrell would love Will Addison to finally get fit and get a run because we've seen loads of nice glimpses from but we don't really know uh, certainly not in test rugby about what he can do. It would be brilliant to see him fit because he has that creative edge. He can play at 15 and obviously at 13 as well but predominantly fullback and Ulster have definitely missed him as well hugely over the last couple of weeks so Hopefully he can get rid of that back issue and, and get a run of games. But what are your thoughts on the 10 depth chart, Murray? Like you asked Bernard, but even if we were to look beyond this autumn and uh, the succession plan or lack thereof, who are the guys or who do you think is the guy in, say, 2022, 2023? Is it Harry Byrne and we have to kind of like get him there? Uh, or is it one of the monster lads or... Or is it still very much unclear? I think it's Harry Byrne in in, in one simple answer. Um, and Andy Farrell probably has shown us that he's leaning in that direction as well because he had him into his squad at the very start of Six Nations over to Portugal, a development player. Clearly, he's someone he wants to fast track. And if I look at them in terms of the talent, and obviously Harry Byrne hasn't done it at any level that his brother has or that other outhaves have in, in Test Rugby as well. I, I just think he has the most talent. I think he has the attacking ability I think he has a passing game he has a definitely got a, a lot of confidence in his own ability as well which is something Leinster um, are probably trying to get a balance on as he comes through um, but when I look down that chart I, I see him as the maybe long term um, project there but for him is the challenge like Bernard alluded to there with Leinster trying to keep everyone happy and is Harry Byrne going to get the minutes to even have that quick rise because Obviously, Ross Byrne, even coming on in the Saracens match, that shows where he stands in it. He got to start in the final of Pro 14. Kieran Frawley now is, is playing at 12 again for Leinster A tomorrow, so perhaps that's his position moving forward. But the chance for Harry Byrne is to get enough exposure. In my eyes, he's the 
the one to watch, I suppose, in that position. Yeah, still a lot of work to do, obviously. We'll see how it pans out over the next couple of years. We've got to talk about Ulster, gentlemen. Uh, Before we do, another quick word from our sponsors. Are you waiting too long for your rugby podcasts? Hi, folks. Gavin Casey here. And that wasn't actually me. But tell me this. What are you doing with your Monday mornings? Fighting the urge to weep? Well, the 42's Murray Kinsella and internationally acclaimed performance analyst Owen Tulin have a better idea as they join forces in the early hours of every Monday to produce the most cutting-edge rugby analysis available to the human ear. Rugby Weekly Extra takes you back into every tackle and jackal from the weekend's action in both hemispheres and is available exclusively to the 42 members. So, encumbered by that dreaded back-to-work feeling on a Sunday evening? <laughs> say no more. Replace it with a back to rock feeling and join the lads as well as the members rugby whatsapp group by becoming a member of the 42 at members.the42.ie okay um ulster there's less to be said about this game because the result was expected, whereas Leinster's was unexpected by most, I think. And it's a weird sort of one to talk about, Murray, because it was a bit of a tonking in the end on the scoreboard. Toulouse just had too much uh, in every area, or that's the way it felt towards the end. But on another day, if Ulster had taken a few opportunities, like I think that game was there for them. And I know it's a, it sounds like a daft thing to be saying, uh, given the scoreline, but it just felt as though... There maybe wasn't as much between the teams as uh, the 20-odd point deficit suggested. or slightly. It's a really frustrating one, isn't it? Like, Toulouse obviously turned it on for kind of intermittent bursts and they have really brilliant players in DuPont and Colby, obviously, with his exceptional finishing um, and restarts and everything else that he did as well. Some big units up front. But I, I agree, I felt there was a big opportunity there and if Ulster had been in better form because their form wasn't good post-lockdown, they got into the Pro 14 final but um, Dan McFarland's been all, uh, honest about it saying we didn't look like a quarter final team and that they hadn't been in good form and, and that sums up really and, and again you go back to some of the decision making you think of them being 8-0 down and they have a 5-on-2 overlap on the left edge and, and Jordy Murphy's pass goes forward and just blows a big opportunity to just put a that seed of doubt I suppose in Toulouse's mind and get back to 8-7 and, and pose a challenge in that way I don't think they probably would have got over the line, but I think it would have been a much closer contest in that event. There were a few misses in the 22 that they had as well. Um, and they definitely missed, could see, uh, as we mentioned, Addison. Um, Tom O'Toole being ruled out late was a blow. So those are a bit of qualifi- uh, qualifying factors, but I think they'll just be really frustrated. And to be fair to Bert, she called it early about how they were looking post-lockdown. Uh, they'll be really frustrated at not getting it right when they came back over the last month or so. Jacob Stockdale taking the brunt of it again, Bernard, which is par for the course, I suppose, at this stage. And I know aesthetically a couple of those uh, Colby tries probably don't reflect greatly on him, but then I think Colby probably scores those tries on, on most players, if not anybody. Um, what did you make of, of, or what do you make of Stockdale, rather? Not even in that game, but it does seem to be the way with him that he can absolutely light it up one day. And the next day, it's not even sometimes I feel as though it's not even so much that he like underperforms as though it's a as much as it's a, a kind of a failure to press the issue and actually really involve himself in the game to the extent 
uh, that he should because of his talent. You know what I mean? So, um, wh- where is Stockdale at? I suppose we're lo- we're talking about Ireland in a few weeks' time. Uh, what what kind of form is he bringing into that international camp? Look, he's not bringing uh, any form in really. Uh, really, he's had a couple of little glimpses um, where he's he's looked interested and and <clears throat> decisive um, in some of the games leading into into last weekend, but. Um, and I, I actually don't really, I, I don't really blame him for the two tries, even though that's been the, the focus of a lot of the criticism. Uh, I think we have to put our hand up to, you know, and say it's standing attack. And I think probably his, his main objective there is to make sure he goes back inside rather than beat somebody outside because you'd like to hope that the cover was coming across. But um, it's his other, other parts of his game, his lack of physicality, um, his lack of, I suppose, uh, interest in, in really imposing himself on the game. I mean, realistically for Ulster now, he, by nature of his experience and his quality, has to be a go-to guy. So when Marcel Coetzee, you know, doesn't make the match day 23 because of injury, it's even more important that someone like um, someone like Jacob <coughs> steps up and starts to to look to get his hands on the ball and be decisive and, and give them go forward and make things happen. And I think, unfortunately, um, the question mark around him at the moment is a little bit around how quickly his his work rate drops off, how error-prone he, he, he is. Um, and probably his body language is, uh, is one I don't really like put, like criticising players on, but he just doesn't... He just drifts. He just drifts off and doesn't seem to really want to get involved and uh, that's the challenge for him is like you want your world-class players no matter if the first 20 minutes goes away or not to to keep stepping up and wanting to get involved and I think he's out of form you know I, I know Ulster top playing him a little bit a fullback would give him more confidence um, but yes his best position is on the left wing and you know he did brilliantly in the last 20 minutes against Edinburgh to win two high balls back but it's just in general over the course of the minutes we've seen there's been too many errors um in his game and not no physicality so i think his position is has to be under serious threat um for ireland and also like you know from a similar point of view from an ulster point of view if ulster are to get back to the level of form they were at pre-lockdown um you know and are to be contenders to win silverware realistically given the squad they have jacob has to be um on form just last thing for me on Ulster you know you go and play a European quarterfinal away in Toulouse and if two of your three pro foreign players are, um, are on the bench and the other one is is Kutsia, who obviously was injured like it, it it's not going to be enough it's not going to be enough like by the, the foreign player um, uh, control in Ireland is very tight right so you you know you don't have the luxury that Toulouse have or or Saracens have etc but you need to get those calls right and realistically, um, I know that there's very different reasons why or whatever, and Sam Carter's coming back from a long-term injury, but it doesn't bode well for Ulster, and it, it'd certainly be an area of regret for them that you know their use of foreign players, the foreign player spots on, on two of the three of them haven't added the world-class level of performance that they, they will need realistically to be contenders because um, you know they don't have the squad depth that, that Leinster have, so you need those. I I think you know all all the Irish provinces need those three or whatever they're allowed to be guaranteed starters. Now they don't have to start every game, but you know a quarter final away from home against Toulouse, um, I think they have to be good enough to start. That's just my opinion on it. Hmm, it's an interesting one. Like Murray <clears throat> had a next season 
where are Ulster? I mean, it feels as though they're probably on paper in a similar enough position to where they were coming into the season just gone, but then again on paper, like when you look at actual achievements or results, they've gone a step further in one competition. Um, but at the same time, for all of their progress under Dan McFarlane, like if you have the exact same year again next year or a worse year, you'd imagine a, a, a kind of a, a pressure does come upon that coaching staff because it, after three years, if you haven't really kicked things on to the point that where you're legitimately in contention for silverware, and, and I know that sounds weird because they were in a Pro 14 final last week, but I guess getting close to winning it, um, that the heat does come on. So where do you think they are at going into this this coming season which is only on the horizon yeah it's a funny one isn't it three year projects done now you gotta start delivering um, and there's not gonna be an acceptance of you losing a couple of these playoff games again Um, it is a fascinating challenge for McFarland to have made the improvements but then try and find that extra edge Um, and it's been interesting even saying the last couple of weeks Tom O'Toole has become the first choice Tyler Prop ahead of Marty Moore, much more experienced player, but wasn't delivering what he has in the past. McGrath was obviously out of the team for Eric O'Sullivan as well. Um, and you've seen Rob Little, I suppose, emerging in the back three as well. And and clearly McFarland, in, in my mind, is, is thinking, OK, I, I need to get these younger guys potentially into more important and prominent roles in the team if I'm going to uh, progress from here and, and become a better team over the next year or so. I think that's uh, part of the challenge for him as well. Um, and whether the whether those younger players um, can become what others have been in the past is is an unknown, I suppose. I'm fascinated to see how them and, and guys like James Hume, who's obviously shown his promise in midfield, can he continue to develop and, and round out his game? Someone like Stuart Moore potentially coming through. Aaron Sexton on the wing is a really good prospect. And, and there are a number of those guys as well. But um, yeah, it is, it is fascinating to see how he takes the project forward now, given all the positivity around it, given all the positive within it as well. I think there's going to be um, a bit of anxiety and restlessness now to have some success. Murray, do you have a starting team for Italy? I think it's time to rattle off a few quick-fire questions before we wrap. But if you don't have one off the top of your head, we can do it next week. Yeah, I actually did this for the the members' newsletter this week. Uh, let me rattle it out here. Lovely. Went for Shane Daly, give him a debut. Andrew Conway, Ring Rosaki, Earls, Sexton, Marmion, Dave Kilcoyne if fit or give Ed Byrne a debut if not. Ronan Keller, Tyg Furlong, Baird, Ryan, Stander, Connors, Doris. I said it nice. things up a little Nice, bit. nice. Bernard, do you have one or will we give you a, a few days to, to play the right, right, we'll next week, yeah. <laughs> no worries, no worries. That was part of a question from Eric Fitzgerald, who's one of our, our favourite, the 42 members. Eric is always great with the questions and he has a couple more in this message as well. So uh, he was wondering, what did the Munster A versus Connacht A game tell us about both provinces' future prospects? And what did the panel think of the Monday night rugby for Pro 14, given that fans are unlikely to be attending games in any great numbers in the future? Uh, if you can keep a brief, Murray, please do. But uh, Monster A versus Connacht Day, who stood out for you? Yeah, it was actually a very good game. Um, John Hodnett was excellent. I know Bernard's a huge fan of his. He was excellent at open side for Munster. Just great leg drive, really prominent throughout. Thomas O'Hearn, again, showing his talent. I thought he was... Uh, really impressive Ben Healy had some nice kicking at out half with both feet actually um, and then Gavin Coombs and Jack O'Sullivan off the bench so I suppose no real surprises Matt Galler again uh, sorry rather in his first appearance he probably looked too good for that level so there's no real surprise in those guys standing out and now it's a case of Johan van Grand getting them the senior exposure on the on the Connick side 
Sammy Arnold, someone we know who can do it in, in senior rugby, but a couple of the others, maybe uh, Colm de Butler worked really well off his wing. Um, Kilgallen on the other side was good as well. Um, Niall Murray looked athletic again, the second row. And Sean Masterson, whose older brother Owen is, is, has been part of the senior squad for some time, he was um, quite punchy on the ball. Uh, Jack Ainger as well, who we saw score that try in his debut against Ulster, he was really dynamic off the bench. So loads of talent there. And, and I mean, it's great that the matches are being streamed for people to get a chance to watch as well. So worth catching a few more of them if they're if they're streamed again in the next few weeks. 100%. Bernard, Monday Night Rugby, your thoughts? Look, at I think um, to get the season wrapped up, given the starting late, they can't afford to take many breaks during during international periods. You know, people can't go to the games anyway. So uh, I, don't, I don't mind it. I've watched a few midweek games um, on BT, to be honest, in the Premiership, um, and haven't, haven't minded. I, I think it's okay. it's tolerable once um, you know the ground stay closed because you know it's not affecting people's ability to go see games live. And yeah, I, I'm actually happy enough with it to be honest. It's, it, like during the international period, we're going to have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday nights now to um, <laughs> to study study a bit of. Uh, I watch watching footy, so uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't mind it given given the, the world we're in at the moment. But um, obviously, long term, um, uh, when fans are able to go to games, it's not really feasible. You're going to be absolutely up the walls, Birch. Uh, one last one from Owen Mullen. Uh, do we overcoach our most exciting talent in Ireland? Larmer calling marks and kicking versus Saris instead of having a go with this pace. Rob Carney was an extremely exciting fullback when he came into the Leinster Ireland setup from school, but changed his game to suit the game plan over the years. Um, I'll start with yourself there, Murray. Although I'd, I think with Carney, to be fair, he okay, he, he he might have changed his game to suit the game plan, but he also adapted to his. Uh, waning athleticism which just happens with with age i don't <laughs> it feels like i'm shitting all over the guy on on this special day for him but you know like as he got older he, he was less maybe less likely to to have a go and still i thought was was athletically excellent late into his career but um players just they do adapt their game over time whether it's pertinent to a game plan or not um but but do we overcoach our most exciting talent uh larmer being one yeah potentially there's I think I'm going to go back to an early point about that decision-making under pressure is the big key thing. And yeah, there's definitely coaching in that and having young kids who are in school or in clubs having a bit of that decision-making responsibility on the pitch where not every single thing is fed to them. So they know exactly what they're going to do in every single area of the pitch, in every single situation, and they don't have any autonomy in that process. There's loads of really good coaches out there who are encouraging that and, and fostering that in players, I suppose. But... That for me is a is a big difference, and when I look at say, I don't know, Kiwi players probably their decision making under pressure and their confidence in their decision making and their skill level is that step above probably consistently over the last few decades, um, and trying to get to that standard is is obviously a, a lofty goal. So yeah, I, I think there can be probably coaching plays into it and and backing players and and their mental skills as well to have the confidence to um, make decisions that maybe are, are out of the game plan at times or aren't exactly what was discussed before the game um, and actually go and take opportunities that are opening up during the game because it's so different to what you've planned and what you've expected so often. Yeah, Keen Highland was another with a question about the decision-making process and Brendan S as well uh, on Twitter. So hopefully you've kind of answered that. Um, I'll, I'll put that one to you as well, Bernard, before we sign off, just about the potential overcoaching of players and also how that 
can factor into decision making. Um, what were your thoughts on the question there? Just there, just um, obviously the example he made uh, from from the Saracens game. But I, I, I think the reality is to, to be successful at this level, you need you know you need really strong coaching and you need to have systems in place. And and the systems and the and the coaching is to um, hopefully give individuals opportunities to express themselves. So there's a fine balance. And I, you know, and I think sometimes when players are under pressure, and it's pressure either from the opposition or pressure from the uh, the occasion, um, they can sometimes go into their into their shell. But I think good coaches will will continue to support them on that, and 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 hopefully you know f- give them tools to relieve that pressure. Uh, so I, I don't think it's an issue. Um, I don't think it's an issue. I think it's it's when players are confident in their ability and um, are. You know, are feeling comfortable because of the the state of the game that they express themselves better. But um, it's a good point. But I think in Ireland the balance isn't too bad. Okay, interesting. Apologies to Dempsey, to Donald Sullivan, who had a, a couple of questions, but I think we addressed them earlier in the pod. Murray, uh, Mick as well, another the forty two member who had a a question about autumn and and so many more on Twitter that we didn't get around to. Uh, it was just no time unfortunately but we always appreciate your support particularly the 42 members uh, members.the42.e if you want to join all of those crazy cats in the whatsapp group i think you described it as lively during the week on twitter murray and uh, a few of them in there were kind of wondering is that is that a compliment is he is he saying we're it's, a compliment. it's a compliment it's a compliment i i, I yeah we're i knew that I knew that. Uh, members.the42.e, if you want to join them in there, we always appreciate your support. If you like this podcast, by the way, I don't know how many episodes we've done at this stage, but I never ask people to give us ratings or, or reviews or anything, but I suppose I should. Uh, if you were feeling especially generous and you just happen to be at a loss uh, with what to do with your phone, please do uh, give us ratings and allow us to kind of climb charts we should probably be checking those a little bit more often <laughs> but maybe we'll start to check them when we're top you know what i mean so uh, any support there would be greatly appreciated as well yeah, Bernie, yeah, thanks just, we'll uh, catch you i didn't realize week. roman poit was on the call for the last hour uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> roman, thanks for the, the coughing in the background it was <laughs> yeah it's something anyone who listened to or watched claremont racing <sighs> will, will know what i mean i hope he's all right i hope he's all right i hope i'm all right <laughs> <laughs> see you next week dads murray thanks a cheers great chat Thanks, everyone, at home as well. We will catch you on Monday. Are you back on Monday, Murray, with the, with the 42 sure members? Sure, yeah. We're going to be talking about the semi-finals, so look forward to that. Super. And for non-members, we'll be back next Thursday. Until then, mind yourselves and take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could have me five mil a year. I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Oh, 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 o